Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Thursday, October 28th, 2021. That means I made the wrong music choice. We should be playing the Monster Mash or something equivalent (laughs) or at least some spooky background sound effects. But hey, we are not here to talk about Halloween, although I guess we could if we want to. Um, I guess, you know, here come all the, uh, this would be the perfect opportunity. If you were my friend Jorge, who I did the, the other show with for years and years, he would have started off, geez, bro, what a scary mask, where I'd be like, ha ha, Jorge, that's the same joke you make every year at this time, to which, um, let's talk about some Formula One <laughs> instead. You know, it's, it's kind of funny, you know, like I, I was really sort of jacked up after last weekend after that really exciting uh, US Grand Prix, but there's been some mixed reaction. There's been a lot of, uh, obviously, uh, you know, a lot of excitement around the race. It sounds like the organization at the track itself was a bit of a gong show from what I've heard from different people and read online. So it sounds like there's a lot to be desired there, but there's also a lot of news to talk about. So at least... Hold on. Oh, wait. Whoa, 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 whoa. I have to ask you a question. Okay, go ahead. There's there's a right answer and a wrong answer. And the right answer is the one that makes me look like less of an idiot. Okay. So here's the question. Sure. So we had a really great Spaces chat tonight. Kudos to everybody that joined. Uh, we had TC. We had Meg. They gave us a really great breakdown of their weekend at Coda. Let me ask you a question. Okay. Do you know, and it's not a trick question. Okay. Do you know what an armadillo is? An armadillo? Yes, it's it's like a little kind of like uh, I, it's like a little animal, with like a kind of a hard shell, like not really a turtle with like kind of a tail on it. Okay, I was I was hoping that might I might be the it might not be the only person in the world that didn't know what that was. <laughs> but in in the conversation of Coda today, this came up as a subject because apparently there is armadillo racing, and I assumed that an armadillo was a species of horse, and I was way off the mark. So, oh my uh, gosh. Yeah. Okay. I think we can move on. I just, I wanted to clarify, hopefully I wasn't the only one in the world that confused armadillo with a species of Texas bred horse, but I, apparently I'm way off the mark. So, but uh, before we get into this, I, I want to ask this and I, I don't want to, you know, make you look any worse than you already made yourself look, but I, I just have says to- Says the guy running a PC <laughs> says the guy... and delays the start of this podcast by 30 minutes. Yeah, exactly. So I, I'm just trying to deflect any sort of like anything away from myself, of course, but I just wanted to know after what we saw last week, at the end of the Grand Prix with the, the the whole trophy presentation, I just wanted to know if you've upgraded your ride since we saw how Shaq rolled in to the podium <laughs> ceremony. Like, like, have you upgraded your ride? I mean, I'm seriously thinking, you know, I, I, I want to get something like they gave Shaq, but I just don't know if I could pull that off. Yeah, I think with the number of children in your home, I think it might be of uh, <laughs> practical benefit practical. to you. But no, we're going to stick with our our basic, well, actually not a basic. We have a pretty nice trim of a Volkswagen 
sport crossover, which I think is what everybody has, right? Like everybody has some sort of crossover these days, but we're content with it. But I did get such a kick because I'm a big Shaq fan. It's funny because I actually mentioned him on last Thursday's podcast as somebody that might surface at the event. And he did. And apparently he also did a DJ set, although as cool. for a lot of folks that were in attendance, they didn't know he was a DJ. I never knew that. So there you go. There's there, there's something. You didn't know what that, that what, what an armadillo was. I didn't know that Shaq was a DJ. We're so we're, we're equal. Yep. So on that's that note, a, we on that note. <laughs> Better late than never, right? So this, I, I think the first one, I, I think this is a kind of topical because this one surprisingly generated a lot of discussion, a lot of media. And that was the yeah, the snub that uh, Martin Brundle got on his uh, his. his Gridwalk, the first one that he's done like in about 35 years since whenever yeah. this <laughs> stupid <laughs> pandemic started that we're all so, you know, so tired of. But <laughs> it is really, really, uh, it, I'm surprised at how much discussion this is uh, taken. He said that, well, Martin's actually said that uh, he, he thinks that some manners and respect uh, should uh, be part of the deal. And I, I think that's fair. You know, I think that if anybody's on the grid, that they should be made aware by their, their handlers, their media people that hey if you're out on the grid you know you're fair game to being interviewed and and don't push around the media you know <laughs> the, the whole thing i just find it a little bit uh, kind of ridiculous but martin's right i completely agree it is it is funny though that on the weekend where so many in the media were quick to declare that formula one has made it in the united states a day later formula one is in the tmz headlines <laughs> so i i definitely got a kick out of that i i also thought that martin brundle handled this beautifully absolutely beautifully the 62 year old former formula one driver he has i think nine podiums to his name he got into broadcasting in the late 90s and like you said he talks that we haven't seen in what feels like an eternity because of covid it was great to see him back out there and i know a lot of people got a kick out of seeing that but i don't even put the fault necessarily at the hands of meg the stallion i feel like she was trying to participate mm -hmm. But I think his his handlers, his security clearly didn't have any understanding of the fact that, hey, if you're going to step foot on the grid before the race, you have certain obligations to the media that are there that you're having the opportunity to come down and showcase and flex on whatever brands you might be co-promoting. You, you have to show some common decency and respect to the folks that are interviewing you. And this also goes back to the conversation that I had with you last week and even the week before that. I really have a distaste for Liberty's need to trot these celebrities out. Mm -hmm. If they are legitimately interested and passionate about Formula One, I want them there. I want them to be part of the spectacle. What I don't like is Formula One trotting people out in a bid to legitimize their sport and the championship. Like, look, look, we're cool. We've got Will Smith at Monaco. Or look, look, we're cool. We've got Ben Stiller, some <laughs> borderline C-list actor that hasn't done anything big since Meet the Fockers 20 years ago. And that's probably unfair because Tropic Thunder was pretty funny but that said but he like, wasn't necessarily the look. star of tropic thunder though i mean i watched it again about a year and a half ago it's still as funny as when it first came out anyways i dig uh, digress <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what we're known for right i just among I think other things that f1 has grown beyond this like formula one doesn't need to legitimize itself by associating and rubbing elbows with celebrities if they want to be there that's great but i would argue that a lot of the drivers on the grid globally are multitudes of times so many factors bigger than a lot of these so-called celebrities they drop out so it wasn't a good look we all got a kick out of it now we can move on well you know i, I guess it kind of makes uh, or begs the question now well does this mean that martin brundle's going to get his own security detail at coda next year there might be kind of a 
you know, a bit of a dust up between <laughs> between bodyguards or something like I that. That it. you know that that would be fitting for all the uh, all all the sites like uh, TMZ. But uh, yeah, it's it's a bit silly, but uh, kind of a, a little bit amusing at uh, the the same time. So there, there's still plenty of things to talk about in in this race. I mean, lots of uh, lots of questions asked in the post mortem, uh, especially uh, by Mercedes, and they, they reckon that they um, you know if they pitted Lewis as early as lap eight, which seems to me to be extremely early, could have actually helped him ultimately uh, beat uh, Max Verstappen. And I think this is just the sort of thing that, uh, you know, discussion that you have when, you know, it was so close, the, the, the way that that race turned out when you had two completely different strategies uh between the two uh, the, the the two protagonists the two uh, title rivals in this race and you know i i still don't i'm still struggling did you know what what actually happened did mercedes make the bad call and lose out did max just outdrive lewis at the end on tires that were completely shot there's so many different uh, different things going on but i would have been very very surprised you know if if you dial this race back several days to sunday afternoon sit down watch this again I would have been literally shocked to see them bring him in as early as lap eight, which would have been, what, about 10 laps? Maybe not quite 10 laps earlier than everybody else. That would have been extremely bold. And I thought that they were kind of bold the way that they they, they went, keeping extending Lewis two times to keep him on the fresher rubber at the end of the race, which logically made a lot of sense. Yeah, it's an interesting thread to pull on to steal a phrase that I, I've heard you use many times on this podcast, but I'm still of the mind that maybe the the disconnect, maybe the failing here was strategy. I think Lewis absolutely drove it. And whatever strategy that Mercedes had probably probably would have evaporated in that moment. But had had they pitted Lewis as early as lap eight or 10 or 12, they ultimately would have ended up in very much the same predicament that Max would have been in ultimately, which was, hey, your tires are rapidly deteriorating and you're going to be behind them. I also think, and this is difficult to say as somebody who had clearly obviously has a fairly soft spot for Lewis Hamilton, I also don't know that this race was necessarily as close as it looked. And I think Lewis, when he was leading Max at times during this race, benefited greatly from the dirty air that he was throwing up at Max behind him. I feel like Max had better pace because, you know, Lewis had clean air for how many laps cut and he couldn't, he couldn't put any time between the two of them. Like when, when that overtake happened, I'm doing the math in my head. I'm thinking lap four, lap five, could it be up two seconds? Could it be up a second and a half? Could be up three seconds. Where could he be if he has clean air for 10 laps, 15 mm -hmm. laps, 20, but he just couldn't put any daylight between him and Max. And my sense in, in hindsight is really the only reason that Max didn't have the opportunity to lunge at him during those, the early portion of the race was simply because Lewis was throwing up so much dirty air, which we've spoken to eternally. So ultimately the more I think about it, I don't know what the clear strategy would have been that would have given Lewis a clearer shot or a clear opportunity to win this race. But at the same time, I almost feel like Mercedes needs to be satisfied that the damage wasn't greater, especially since Max had pole. I think if you went into Sunday and you said, hey, look, the outcome's going to be a one-two, it's going to be a Max Lewis finish. I think a lot of people on the Mercedes side would probably be satisfied with that because mm -hmm. of some damage mitigation as much as they needed to avoid that seven-point delta being put up on the board. I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling, but I cannot, I can't find a clear-cut pathway 
in my mind to Mercedes winning that race. I don't know what it would have been, even 72, 96 hours later. And I don't I don't know if you see what that pathway would have been. Yeah, I, I've really tossed this one back and forth over the past uh, couple of days. And I, I still come back to the same conclusion that I, I think that both teams set up their driver in what they thought was the, the, the best situation for them. I, I thought that uh, Max was at a bit of a disadvantage being, uh, you know, being due to the fact that he was going to be on very old tires at the end of yeah, the race and th- and that's point. why i thought that uh, mercedes was like was really on point and and we've we've seen lewis do this before where he extends and then he puts in some really hot laps and then i thought they they really did the right job but it was interesting too in those those closing laps uh, after the last stop when lewis had the fresher tires he was taking spades and chunks out of that lead that max had and then I was just kind of wondering as we, we were talking that how much of that was, I don't want to say it was artificial, but maybe a little bit more to the point was they all encountered traffic and and, and Max, I think, maybe got held up a little bit more. Um, and I think that really did a lot. But I think that the one crucial overtake of a backmark right on that penultimate lap when Max came up behind uh, Mick Schumacher right at the most inopportune time. And uh, that really could have made, made a difference. But I think at the end of the day, I, th- I think both teams did what they thought was best for their car and for their driver and when it came down to it it just really was those two guys going head to head and and fighting it out on the track lewis was doing what he needed to do max was doing what he needed to do they both had to to go through the same amount of cars because they 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 were fairly close together and uh fortunately for you know people who are cheering for max he didn't trip over uh mick schumacher at the end he didn't hold max up uh, too much and i mean 1.3 seconds between these two guys over the the course of what was it 56 laps or whatever it was and all the drama in between was really quite uh, r- remarkable and I mean the 12 or 13 point lead or whatever Max has right now I mean it's it's a little bit comfortable in, in the championship but I mean on the in the flip side if Lewis had won that race, he would have, um, you know, taken the lead back, albeit by by a smaller margin. And we still have five races to go, so I mean, there's still everything in play. And uh, I, I, again, as we were talking about on Sunday night in the post race show, was the big question is now: Does Lewis is he going to have to uh, incur a grid penalty by changing out that internal combustion engine or anything like that? Which you know, at least a couple of days ago, sounded like it could be a, a very real possibility. Plus, we're going to Mexico, you know, that uh, higher altitude of High Mexico. Altitude. Uh, uh, Mexico City, which has been a bit of an advantage for the Honda engines over the past couple of years. So, you know, it's it's tough to say. And, I, and I, as I've said over the last couple of shows, I think that there's very little between these two cars at the moment. And I think it's really coming down to the two drivers in them, in Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton. And I think, you know, from, from a fan's point of view, that is the, the most ideal situation is that whatever happens, it's going to come down to a battle between these two guys. Because usually Mercedes gets their tactics pretty good. So does a uh, Red Bull strategy. Both of those teams are on point, although Mercedes in more recent times, and we know that uh, that they've been a little bit more susceptible to poor pit stops. So I would give maybe a bit of a slight advantage to uh, to, to, to Red Bull there. But you know, well, go ahead. Yeah, and, and no, I, I I think I don't disagree with what you're saying. I think the way to state this, and we had a Twitter question from one of our listeners, Emmanuel. Yeah. He he writes, "How do Red Bull somehow keep nailing their performance and strategies while Mercedes keeps dropping the ball when you expect them to be flawless? It just un, it's just unimaginable and sad." So obviously a Lewis fan, obviously a Mercedes fan. I think Toto might be asking is, the same question. Yeah, but I think if we look back at the last six or seven years. 
Mercedes strategy was largely irrelevant for most Grand Prix and for most seasons because they were never in a position where anyone was challenging them for a race win. Nobody was challenging them for a pole. So there was this perception, there was this idea that from a strategy perspective, they were flawless, but they never had to engage their their tacticians and their strategy directors because ultimately they were four or five seconds ahead of anybody else and they were lapping at all the fifth place in the mm-hmm. Grand Prix. So really, I think it's less that, hey, suddenly they're doing less from a strategy perspective, but rather their strat- strategy team, their strategy directors are maybe being exposed a little bit because for the first time since 2014, they're really being worked. And I think we have to remember that last year, and obviously Red Bull had some pretty significant reliability issues, but Mercedes effectively dominated last year's championship. That yeah. A lot of the success that Red Bull are having are new to this year. Their reliability is dialed in. The consistency of at least one of their drivers is absolutely dialed in. And it seems like Sergio race by race is getting sharper and sharper sharper and sharper and really starting to prove that he's earned that contract for next season. But I think it's less that, hey, Mercedes strategy is not as effective as it was, as opposed to, hey, they never had to strategize Mm -hmm. anything for six or seven years because they were lapping all the way up to fifth place on the grid. And now all of a sudden, it's a very, very, very different reality. And I think from a reliability perspective, Mercedes is also in a very different place because for 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, and even parts of 2019, I promise you, they weren't dialing their engine modes up past 90% of peak peak power of peak output because they simply didn't need to. And by keeping it at 90%, you saw dramatic reliability with these cars because, hey, running these engines at 90% load, because even at that, we're still qualifying on pole. They were qualifying on pole with their weakest engine modes. That's how far of a delta or gap there was between them and the rest of the field. Now, all of a sudden, you have this Honda-powered Red Bull team whose power unit is making the equivalent output, and all of a sudden, Mercedes has to dial their power unit up to 100%, which is something that they haven't had to do for six or seven years. And all of a sudden, now they're encountering reliability issues because they're having to strain their their power source, their battery, their MGU-H, their MGU-K, their power store, things they haven't had to. So all of a sudden, they're being exposed and challenged in ways that they haven't been for the last six or seven years. And that's not to take anything away from Red Bull because that's what a great team does is you put other great teams in a position where they're fighting out of a pressure cooker. And that's absolutely, I think, the situation that Mercedes is in now. You know, it's interesting. The first thing that sort of pops to my mind is uh, Ferrari 2018, the uh, the, the year that uh, Sebastian Vettel had a shot at the championship and was actually leading that championship for, for a, a period of time. And a lot of the criticism at that time was, oh, Ferrari's tactics and strategy just isn't in point. You know, they mess up their pit stops and things like that. But I think a lot of it, at least in my mind, is that uh, Ferrari that year, they, they saw that there was an opportunity that they were close to Mercedes. Maybe not equal, but they were close. And they were just really pushing the envelope, like on, on, on everything, you know, on, on the car, you know, the, just physically, mentally, everything. And that's why we saw those those you know, mistakes and issues manifest. And uh, Sebastian Great Vettel call. tripping over uh, different people at different times because they were just pushing, you know, 110, you know, pull out all the metaphors that, that you want. They were pushing 110% or more because they, they knew that they could win some races and take some 
you know, some some points away from uh, Mercedes. Ultimately, it didn't work. But again, um, Mercedes just still had a little bit left in the bag that, you know, they could, um, you know, dial it up a notch or two and then just stay ahead of uh, Ferrari who were that's, close but not close that's enough. That's such a great point. And, and you have to wonder as well that how much of that pressure that Ferrari were feeling because midway through the season, they were in mm-hmm. contention to win not one but two constru- two championships. How much of the pressure that they were feeling resulted in the decisions that they were making about the power unit that ultimately got them into hot water with the FIA. And just to circle back, just to finish off my comments on this story, I think Mercedes is now in this really challenging position where they're balancing performance. So Mm -hmm. dialing that engine up to compensate for the fact that they're at a disadvantage with these high rate cars versus the philosophy that Red Bull's employing. So they're in this position where, hey, we need to compensate for our aero by dialing that engine up. But in doing so, we run into these reliability issues because we haven't had to dial our engines up to 100, 105 in six or seven years. And we also don't have experience doing it. Whereas Honda, they've got all the experience in the world over the better part of the last six or seven years running their engines at full output, full load, because Mm -hmm. their engines have historically been so underpowered to make up any of the performance delta versus the rest of the grid. They've had to run their engines at 100%. So they just have more reps maximizing the load on their engines. So Red Bull definitely has an advantage here, and Mercedes is walking this delicate balance before between, hey, we need to manage reliability, which means we don't want to be chucking too many new internal combustions in there and taking those grid penalties versus if we turn it up too much, maybe we have an engine failure and we puke up all of those points in a race versus, hey, we need to make up that performance because we've got an aero deficiency versus Red Bull. So a lot of considerations from the Mercedes camp side, not oh, yeah. just the totally. race strategy. Yeah, yeah, great points. Hey, let's take a quick break when we come back on the other side. Uh, we've got lots more. We've got some emails. We've got some tweets uh, and lots of news to talk about. And we'll do so in just a moment after a quick word from our sponsors. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, well, welcome back to the show. This is the second segment of the first show of the week. What, what am I doing? This is getting a little bit uh, confusing now. <laughs> Anyways, um, sticking with uh, Mercedes, uh, team principal Total Wolf is pretty adamant that that the uh, departure, recent departure of Andy Cowell, who's their former engine boss, has not led to any of the issues or problems that they've had with uh, reliability. So 
He was, uh, you know, the, the managing director of the Mercedes High Performance Powertrains. He left in 2020 and was recently linked with the new Red Bull Powertrains uh, operation. Um, however, he's not working there yet. Uh, perhaps uh, there's uh, some sort of agreement in place that, uh, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, time period he has to sit, you know, go, what, what do they call that? Gardening leave gardening or something? Leave. Yeah, gardening leave. <laughs> Until he could start over again. I would love again. to go on some gardening leave right about now. Yeah, I know. Me, me too, even though it's uh, not that time of year. But anyways, uh, Toto had to say, quote, the strength of the organization is its depth. Andy is clearly an exceptional personality in, uh, that contributed in his uh, day, but uh, so is Highwell Thomas and everyone besides him. I have 100% confidence in the structure we have today. Engine developments are not something that happens overnight. It has a long lead time when things go right or things go wrong. Andy was a massive part of our past success, but was so was Highwell and everyone else. So I don't think you can uh, pinpoint it to one of the leaders having decided to leave the organization. There are still really profound strengths within the organization, end quote. Sure, fair enough. But anytime I think that you have anybody leave, especially somebody in such a big, high-profile position, you know, especially the managing direction of your HPP program, that's got to create like a bit of a vacuum because even if they promote somebody internally, there is always going to be a bit of rollover time as uh, things kind of reshape themselves and things like that. And obviously, he would have had a lot of input into that engine. And so, I mean, perhaps the effect isn't maybe that big maybe it isn't and uh, i i just can't help uh, that that toto is just trying to downplay and just maybe try and smooth this one over a little bit uh, you know i i just kind of get that uh, that that feeling he's trying to not to make it out to be as big of a deal as perhaps it is this is going to be one of those very rare moments so mark this in your calendars where you and i take a slightly different path on this topic my sense is he's probably right in that significant or meaningful changes to a power unit have very, very, very long lead times. Sure. It's not as though, hey, it's December, we've got this great concept and we're going to be rolling it out in in the spring for for one of the Grand Prix early in the season. Typically, it's something that has to go through extensive testing, simulation, all the parts have to be fabricated, it has to be tested, it has to go through all kinds of stress testing. Like It's not something that can happen quickly. So he was with the team until late 2020. I think where his departure, and we've talked touched on this topic in the past i think where his his departure is going to be felt is less now especially given the fact that the engines are all being frozen heading into Mm -hmm. next season and will be until at least the end of 2025 i think where his departure will probably be felt is when we go into the next era of power units we'll begin to better understand then how meaningful his presence was at the team so i don't think this is a big story i think it's very intriguing and i think it's a really sexy topic to discuss him leaving mercedes and going to arch rival red bull and milton Keynes 30 minutes down the road i think <laughs> that's a pretty interesting topic well that's juicy that yeah for confirmed. sure but i think you're absolutely right he's probably on gardening leave right now which is the polite way of saying hey you're going to run out your contract at home before you can sign on with a new team which is something you've probably made very clear to us is your intent yeah, yeah, exactly right. And the next uh, quote from uh, Total Wolf is uh, th- this regards the, um, you know, the the penalties that are involved with uh, changing your internal combustion engine. So if um, you change them four times in the season, you get a 10 place grid penalty. And then if you change it a fifth uh, time, then it's back just to the, the, the regular five. And uh, Total calls this, quote, an anti-embarrassment <laughs> regulation from the days when Honda engines were just uh, completely garbage. The, the the beginning of that was Toto's. The uh, the, the latter part uh, the was McLaren mine. Era. Yeah, yeah, the McLaren era, yeah. you know, sort of like... I think, yeah. 
And I think one of those years, they amassed, McLaren amassed, I think, 100 grid penalty places in one season because- Oh, uh, it, was, it was huge, yeah. It was crazy. It was crazy. But I think ultimately, everything that they lost with McLaren is helping them in their championship bid right now. So it's definitely paid off in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, do we want to tackle another news story? What's up on the here? Oh, here, yeah. Let, let's stick with this one. And then I want to just uh, delve into the mailbag. So uh, apparently Red Bull asked the FIA to inspect the Mercedes uh, suspension. <laughs> this seems to be a little bit more, of, uh, you know, a political subterfuge and all these things, which, you know, they, they all do all, all the time back and forth. I mean, remember earlier this year that um, Mercedes was doing exactly the same thing to Red Bull and the flexi wing and all that. Anyways, uh, so um, Christian Horner, the team principal at Red Bull, made uh, reference to what he uh, called a straight line device that lowers the rear of the car, which would increase the top end speed of the W12, and uh, which uh, Horner believed really gave uh, Mercedes a considerable advantage at the Turkish Grand Prix, which was won by uh, not Lewis, but by uh, Valtteri Bottas. So according to uh, Automotor und Sport, which is obviously a German publication, they're reporting that uh, FIA made the FIA take a closer look at the rear suspension of the uh, the Mercedes regarding its uh, legality, and apparently the results of this uh, investigation was uh, inconclusive. It's very, very. I'm trying to think of a way to contextualize this in the world of in the world of modern business. Imagine well, let's put it this way: up. this was like the UFO sightings of Formula One. It's like they saw something; they just don't know what it was. Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> and from a business perspective, it's like, hey, I run a big box store that sells something that's going to sell well on Black Friday, and I have a competitor down the block. It's kind of like me calling the IRS and saying, hey, they're committing tax fraud, I think. And then the IRS rolls in on Black Friday, and they start going through their books and distracting the business owners. That's kind of what Red Bull did in this case, <laughs> which is they kind of flag the FIA. They say there's something up to something. So the FIA moves into the garage. They're asking questions. They're looking through technical documents. They're stripping the car apart. And now all of a sudden, Mercedes is focused on this FIA, quote unquote, audit as opposed to getting ready for the race weekend. Now, this topic uh, kind of came up over the course of the weekend, and it got a lot of people excited. Now, I think what we need to be clear of here is it created excitement and it created a lot of reaction because I don't think people understood necessarily what's happening here. And I think the thought is, hey, they've done something or they've introduced some sort of mechanical component to their rear suspension, mm -hmm. which is designed to compress under load because if the rear end is under load and it squats, it creates additional downforce and it reduces drag. So in theory, on a track with a lot of straights, if this mechanism is engaged, the rear end squats when the driver is on full throttle. So the rear end squats, the car creates additional downforce and there's less drag. So it's speculated that there was some sort of mechanical device in place. Now, that's not actually the case. And what Mercedes has done here is something that teams have been doing to boost straight line speeds for the better part of the last probably the last decade and a half. And I'm going to quote from the actual Formula One website here just to give everyone a little bit of perspective on what's happening here. Okay. It's not that there's something mechanical about the rear suspension. It's not like there's a button in the cockpit that they press and the rear suspension just squats. It's more about using the underbody and an underbody rear diffuser to create 
a low center of gravity by creating suction between the road and the bottom of the car. So I'm going to read this. Teams have been deliberately initiating diffuser stall to boost top line speeds for 15 years or more. The underfloor with the diffuser at the back of it creates a lower pressure beneath the car than the ambient air on top, thereby exerting incremental downforce on the body, more so with a high rate car than a low rate car. So this actually benefits Mercedes based hmm. on their current aero philosophy. Now, as the speed of the car increases and the downforce from the underfloor and rear wing increases at the square of the speed, so the rear of the car is pressed down on its suspension and the rake handle on the floor reduces, blah, 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 blah. So basically, it's an aero design in combination with the rear diffuser that helps create downforce, reduce drag, but it's nothing to do with some meddling, unexpected, illegal device in the suspension. I think Christian Horn and Red Bull probably knew this. They weren't sure, but by calling in the FIA, the FIA was able to go and cause some distraction. Yeah, it's just kind of making me wonder, like this whole story, does like, is there some secret WhatsApp group with like Mercedes whistleblowers sending Christian like uh, anonymous, uh, you know, uh, messages, go look at this or, because it's just like one of those things. Sorry, go ahead. Yes. No, we know, for instance, teams have regularly hired professional photographers oh, yeah, that they sure. place all around the track. Um, one of the things that we know that teams often do as well is they have photographers trackside that are photographing with extremely high shutter speed cameras. They are out there positioned around the track to take photos of other cars that are at such a high shutter speed that it actually freezes the tire so they can better gauge the condition of their rival's tires hmm. so they can dictate internal strategy. So we know teams will do anything for this type of intel and this type of data. In your case, you're right. It may not even have been something within the team. It's something that could have been reported from outside of the team. It could have been something that was called in. It could have been somebody that's in another team that shared this information and offhanded conversation around the old coffee pot on a Monday morning. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder because I mean, like the, the the big debate earlier this year, obviously, was the the, the whole flexi wing thing, right? And I mean that exactly. The, I mean that was kind of obvious to see because you could look at the pictures, you could look at some of the video, and you could see something that was going on. And 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 this to me seems to be one of those really sort of subtle, detailed things that, you know, a very, very educated eye would have to look for. And so you'd have to really, you know, you'd have to know exactly what it is that uh, that, that you're after, like, or the characteristics, the way the car behaves, whatever it is, it it, it seems like a very specialized detail that you, you'd be going after. I'm just going to finish reading this article from the F1 website real quick. It's just two quick paragraphs. And it concludes, if the rear of the car can be induced to sit low enough, eventually the diffuser will stall and will no longer be inducing the low pressure area from the floor. That means a vast reduction in the car's downforce, but it comes, uh, but with it comes a corresponding decrease in drag. This will boost the speed of the car on the straights where downforce isn't as necessary. It's an extremely intricate thing to engineer and requires a lot of very powerful simulation tools. The stall point has to be tunable from track to track to ensure it isn't close to the stall position through the fastest corners. The downforce is not needed on the straights, but it is most certainly required in the corner. So it's a delicate balance of engineering in the sense that, hey, you want this effect to be really pronounced in the straights where downforce isn't as necessary and drag is to your detriment, Mm -hmm. but it's not important in the corners where you need as much downforce as possible so you can carry as much speed through those corners without without sliding. Again, it's just the the amount of uh, 
thought and design and everything that goes into these cars is just absolutely uh, mind-blowing. Anyways, uh, time for another quick break. When we come back, I want to dive into the the mailbag and then uh, we'll get on with the when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply rest of the news so don't go away we'll be back after this very very short break okay guys welcome back and let's go back to the mailbag like i've threatened a couple of times uh first up uh, is a a message here from our good friend uh, joe santucci who's uh, written with some some interesting feedback of what uh, what transpired at Coda last weekend. Uh, first off, and this I think was uh, pretty uh, obvious on the, on the TV. I'm just uh, surprised that, uh, or I'm not surprised, I'm actually uh, interested to hear what it was like at the track, but uh, he said that support for Checo Perez was wild. Uh, to me, it felt like he had the most support uh, or fan support of anybody there, which, you know, that really came across on the uh, on the on the TV. You could hear that the, that the cheers for uh, Perez were as much as anyone else so it's uh, that's interesting to hear that uh, that for the people that were the track it actually seemed like the, there was more support for him than uh, anywhere else uh, or any other driver which I guess kind of makes uh, sense uh, considering where Texas is located and geographically and the fact that uh, Perez is a Mexican driver and there's uh, you know a lot of people of uh, Mexican uh, heritage and uh, Mexican expats living in the United States then uh, Joe goes on to say there were a lot of the recently released McLaren football jerseys, which was pretty impressive given how recent the launch was. Many merch items were completely sold out by Sunday. They clearly were not prepared for the demand, which could have been impacted by the global supply chain issues. Which, yeah, that whole global supply chain issue, <laughs> just still can't overget uh, that one. Um, then uh, Joe goes on to say, Coda infrastructure is awful. I was honestly embarrassed about how poorly the logistics were. A number of points here. Oh, this is a good one here. I know multiple people who spotted Danny Ricardo at various spots around Austin. I have no idea how he was able to cover the entire city in such little time. (laughs) I think that's pretty obvious. He has uh, body doubles. (laughs) Or he's just uh, literally popping up all over the place. Goes in and makes an appearance at one place and then he's across town. But that's that's cool. It's good to see Danny out there, uh, you know, doing different events and mixing with the fans. Uh, then he goes on to say, F1 opening deposits for 2022 was brilliant. I had several friends who couldn't spend the $500 resale for StubHub this year, but put deposits down for next year already. And then uh, finally, uh, Joe says, restaurants in Austin have been very understaffed since the pandemic. And I heard anecdotally that many were not able to staff the event. So the food options were not nearly as good as 2019, which is, you know, one of the things that we've heard that, uh, you know, there's a lot of great place, places to eat in Austin when you're visiting there for the uh, for the race. So great. Good to hear from you, Joe. And there was a lot more uh, different things here. But, you know, you know, certainly like a lot, some of the other uh, of his comments here, uh, they're all basically related to the the, the one sort of umbrella comment about how the infrastructure and the organization at Coda just left a lot to, to be uh, desired, which is a, you know, it's a shame to hear. He makes a really good point too. And I'll quickly add this because sure. we've got some really great questions to get to, but that comment about the fact that Coda might eventually come under pressure from other 
other venues in the United States that would love to host a U.S. Grand Prix is an interesting one, right? Like right. it could be one of those situations where Liberty is like, hey, we're willing to re-up, but we expect X amount of capital investment in the track. But his points and his comments are pretty consistent with what we've heard universally from folks that attended that it was a fantastic atmosphere and it was a fantastic atmosphere because of the people that were there and the energy that they brought mm -hmm. organizationally, whether it was buses, shuttles, parking, food, merch, all of it was a disaster. Parking mm -hmm. was oversold. One of the comments that I've read as well is that the track was almost entirely staffed with folks that were hired off of gig apps in the <laughs> okay. days ahead. So a lot of the people manning, for instance, the food kiosks were there because they were basically summoned via an app and they had no knowledge of what they were doing. And furthermore, they didn't anticipate the crowds that they saw. So uh, by Sunday, all of the merch was sold out with the exception of some Haas pieces and that food and beer were selling out by mm -hmm. midday Sunday. So logistically, oh I think there's some great challenges there. Um, I, I just credit everyone that was there because I think the atmosphere that those that were in attendance enjoyed was a direct byproduct of the energy that the fans brought. It's nothing that Coda did. It's nothing necessarily that Formula One did on the day, but it was rather the energy that the people brought. But I think going into next year, I think some people might be willing to forgive them. Hey, it's the first race in two years, came out of pandemic. There were 400,000 people. You've never seen crowds like this, but you damn well don't get a pass next year unless Certainly. it's perfect. Yeah. yeah. And on a related note, I heard that, uh, that, uh, the, all the, uh, 2021 us Grand Prix commemorative Nikita Mazepin's uh, shirts are in full supply at all the lo local thrift shops around Austin. So if you missed out <laughs> at the track, you can still get yours uh, down at the Salvation Armory or something like that for like a, a buck at the most. <laughs> uh. Anyways, going back, you know, I, I, you're not going to let me get away from this one. Uh, anyways, we got a message here from Toby Louisa Ernst. Question is, I have a potentially dumb question. No such thing. Uh, but we'll use the excuse that this is my first full season as an F1 viewer and fan. Another new face in this world for whom Drive to Survive was pretty much the only highlight of the pandemic. My question is about tires. I know that if a driver makes it to Q3, they have to start the same or they start the race on the same tires they used in Q2. But what happens if, as we've seen a few times recently, a driver finishes in the top 10 but takes a penalty that pushes him to the back of the grid. Um, for example, technically Lewis Hamilton qualified first in uh, Turkey but took the penalty and started the Grand Prix at 11th. Had it not been wet, would he have uh, been locked into running to his Q2 tire? I feel like uh, he get his pick because I seem to recall Bottas starting on hard tires at Monza, which he didn't qualify on, but possibly missing something. On the other side of the same coin, Vettel did not make the top 10 in qualifying but got bumped after LH dropped back. Would he still have to have gotten to pick his tires or did he have to go back to the Q2 tires he had run on? Now, I must admit, I, I don't know all the twists and turns and nuances to, to the tires, but what, as far as I understand the way that the rules work, if you make it into the top 10 shootout in Q3, you have to start on the tires you qualified in Q2. For the bottom 10 drivers, they have all the different uh, three compounds available to them. So I would assume that would be the same if you qualify first and you've got like a armload full of uh, of grid penalties and you end up starting 20th i think that uh, you would have that option to start on uh, on hard tires did i did i get that right or am i completely off base yeah i think so i think the only comment is the q2 tire that you would start the race on if you qualify for q3 would be the tire that you were rocking on your fastest q2 time or the q2 time that got you through to Q3. And I think the only other comment from this is some eagle eyed Reddit users have noticed in some upcoming sporting regulations that it looks like this 
rule is going to be abandoned from 2022 onwards. So there's currently a disadvantage in the sense that you're handicapped if you go into Q3 because you don't get free choice of tires for the start of the race, whereas everyone else does. Um, going into 2022, all teams will have free choice of tires. So this weird kind of odd rule that was maybe designed to add some intrigue to the race and put the top finishers or the top qualifying finishers in some sort of disadvantage will be swept away. So mm -hmm. we won't see this. Presumably we won't. And there could be an amendment to the sporting regulation. It could be an error, but we're not expecting to see this for 2022 onwards. Yeah. I think it was one of those things to maybe give a bit of a competitive advantage to the cars yeah, that qualify exactly. in the lower half of the grid, but I don't think it ever really panned out in the way that they, they, they hoped it, uh, it would. Now, moving on to the next uh, set of news, we've got a couple more questions. Did you want to answer the one about the driver's weight, or did you talk about that in yeah. the, the spaces? No, I... Okay, well, well, let's do that one, because it's kind of a related one. So this one comes from uh, BJ Miller, and again, it says, another dumb rookie question. Guys, there's no such thing as dumb questions. They're all good. You know, you're almost as... Well, uh, apparently my armadillo question wasn't that good. Well... I, ass I assumed that most people didn't know what an armadillo was. Difference is, as as, as host of the show, Mark, you know, we're, we're sort of uh, put up on a... We're, there's more expected <laughs> <pedestal>. of... <laughs> a small pedestal, uh, but nonetheless. Anyways, uh, BJ's uh, question is, can you explain the pre-post weigh-ins by the drivers? I was wondering if a driver not having any hydration during a race, i.e. Checo Wakoda, who had, a, you know, drinks... Uh, system malfunction could ever possibly result in the car driver being too light uh, during post-race inspections or does the driver weight not really factor into the overall calculation and is just used as a baseline measurement that's a great question actually it's it's a great question f1 cars are very 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 strictly interrogated in terms of curb weight. Uh, mm -hmm. they're, they're regularly inspected and weighed by the FIA, I believe, after almost every single session. Currently, the FIA, through the technical regulations, requires that the car plus driver must have a minimum weight of 752 kilograms. For Evan and for all of our American listeners at home, I did do the conversion of this. It's about 1,657 pounds or roughly half the weight of a typical road car like a Subaru Impreza. So Formula One cars are light. But the car plus driver must weigh a minimum of 752 kilograms. Now, of that, a minimum of 80 of it must be the driver. So drivers must weigh 176 pounds. Now, that said, it's sometimes very difficult for a driver to achieve that weight based on their height. Uh, some of them would have to carry a lot of excess weight in addition to muscle. So if a driver does not clock in at 80 kilograms, the cars are typically equipped with a ballast that's designed to top up the difference to make sure that the driver plus ballast does weigh in at 80 kilograms. Now, mm -hmm. the point that BJ brings up here is a very real one, and it does happen. It hasn't happened in a necessarily high-profile way in the recent history, but it's speculated or it's understood that sometimes in a Grand Prix, a driver could lose as much as four kilograms in weight. So if they are very, very close to that 80 kilogram limit, it's very easy for them to shed three or four kilograms of weight during the race. And the other things that teams have to be very cognizant of is not only will they 
lose a significant amount of weight through moisture sweating out of their skin. But sometimes if the drivers become dehydrated, that rate of moisture or liquid loss accelerates. So typically before a race, teams are very, 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 very careful about making sure that their drivers consume as much liquid as possible. And it's also why they have the drinks machines yeah. in the cars because they want to keep them not just they don't necessarily just want them to go into the race maybe I, and saying over um oversaturated is is probably the wrong term but they're very very careful to make sure that drivers drink a lot of fluids before the race and mm -hmm. that they're continuing to drink throughout the race because the fear is if they hit that that kind of threshold where now hey they're becoming dehydrated the rate of weight loss accelerates and it can put them into a tricky position so awesome question but to summarize yeah the driver plus car has to weigh in at a minimum of 752 kilograms and the driver has to clock in at 80 of that. If the driver is smaller than that, they have to carry ballast in the car to make up the difference. But there's absolutely always that risk that a driver loses more than three or four kilograms and suddenly the team could be penalized because they're not meeting the minimum 752 kilograms. It's also, it's interesting as well. And I don't know how effective this would be, but sometimes teams will do interesting things with the cars during mm -hmm. a race or during the setup for the race so the car will actually finish a race underweight the driver could clock it in 80 kilograms but the car could be at a reduced rate so sometimes the teams will do funny things and direct drivers to start picking up rubber debris so yep. as the tires shed during a race they start puking up marbles they, they're basically round balls of rubber but they'll actually direct the drivers to start picking those up on the outsides of their tires so they yep. gain additional unsprung weight but yeah, so it's definitely a good question. Yeah, well, sometimes you'll hear that uh, after the end of the race, they'll say, go pick up rubber, and that can actually add exactly. several points, or sorry, several pounds to the uh, the, the weight at the, uh, you know, at, at the check-in, at the scrutineering afterwards. It's fascinating. I mean, obviously, every extra ounce and every extra gram makes a difference in Formula 1, but it's not the, that, that minimum weight is not just uh, uh, something unique to Formula 1. You see it uh, in other sports as well, like road cycling, for example. UCI has a minimum. Really? Yep. I mean, but it's... It's, it's different. It's not like the, there's a minimum for like a bike and rider because you have riders of different sizes and weights. Uh, but, you know, the thing is uh, UCI regs. So th we're th talking Tour de France here. Minimum weight is 6.9 kilograms for one of those bikes, which translates to uh, a shade over 15 pounds. And, you know, because they what? can make. Yeah, which is crazy. They can actually make these bikes a lot lighter than 6.9 kilos. And they actually had to mandate that, that it has to be that minimum weight. So, I mean, the, these crazy technologies and materials we see in Formula One, we see similar things being done in other elite level sports. And it, it's, it's just crazy. Although, like I say, I mean, obviously the bigger cyclist you are has uh, an impediment when it comes to speed and especially when you go through the mountains and things like that. But it's it, it's fascinating how these combinations of of you know, athletes and machine, whatever, whatever sport it is really can have, uh, you know, a profound uh, impact. I didn't realize that, but now that yep. you mentioned it, that makes total sense because I'm assuming that some of these road bikes, they must be almost entirely carbon fiber. Oh yeah. Frame. Yep. Yeah. And for those of you that are home at home and you're a sneakerhead and you're big into shoe games, think about Nike's quote unquote controversial vapor flies as a comparison to mm. what we're talking about here. A shoe that absolutely pushes the boundaries of what's technically capable in a running shoe and has helped smash records at multiple marathons across the globe. But, but well, yeah, we saw that and at again, Tokyo last summer too. There was a lot exactly. of these, you know, like records were falling all over the place, you know, due to these like super sneakers or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's, it's fascinating totally. the materials we see just across the board from sport to sport.
The other thing that's important about the driver weight, and I, I jotted this down as a note, is I think it's also something that's incorporated as a rule or maybe a directive is simply to preserve the physical health of the drivers because i think unless somebody's regulating their body weight there's always that temptation that drivers just lose and lose and lose weight and mm -hmm. then get into an unhealthy position in terms of the amount of weight and body fat that yep. they're carrying and it can get into a dangerous territory so it's a good way to regulate and govern the teams to make sure that there's no undue pressure on the drivers to lose an unhealthy amount of weight <laughs> And when they're probably carrying like 2% body fat to begin with. Exactly, exactly. Um, just before we go on to the next uh, item of news, there's an interesting comment uh, here in the live chat from Javier Ramos. Uh, and his comment is, it is actually cheaper and less expensive for some Mexicans to go to the U.S. Grand Prix than the Mexican Grand Prix. Wow. It says, uh, he goes on to say the Mexican GP is significantly more expensive to attend compared to the U.S. Grand Prix. So that that is interesting. You know, I, I honestly did not know that. I've never actually looked into pricing for, for either of them. I just haven't been in the position. Well, I mean, nobody's been in the position to go out to either of them, you know, in the last uh, year or so anyways. But uh, that that is interesting. It'd be very interested to see what some of the uh, the, the ticket prices are like for um, for the Mexican Grand Prix. We're going to come back to that because uh, the, the presale window for Miami opened a, a couple of days ago. But want to sort of stick with the American theme here for the moment because uh, Nico Hulkenberg, former Formula One driver, impressed in his first IndyCar test for Aero McLaren SP. And uh, this is, uh, you know, th this is uh, really cool to see. I, I like Nico um, Hulkenberg. I think he's a decent driver. I think he's a, a really good uh, personality. You know, I, I think that uh, his time in Formula One had uh, come and gone. I mean, he did uh, kind of had a, a bit of a cameo last year as reserve driver filling in a couple of times in the bizarre pandemic season that was uh, last year. Uh, but uh, uh, McLaren, sorry, Arrow McLaren SP team president Taylor Keel said he was very impressed by Hulkenberg's first IndyCar test and admitted uh, he'd be ex expecting him to do well, just uh, given uh, Hulkenberg's talents as a former, or former Formula One driver. Yeah, I don't really have a lot to add here. I think it just does speak to the symmetry between the growing symmetry between Formula One in, in Indy. And I think long term, <clears throat> F1 really does want to grow revenues. I think a purchase of that championship, that series is the right thing to do. And hopefully we'll see more and more F1 teams buy teams in IndyCar because it's a really great place to sash drivers, young drivers, especially or drivers that maybe don't have an opportunity at a Formula One seat, but are still very capable. I always forget, and I just brought up his stats in front of me, but yeah. I always forget how long Nico Hulkenberg was in the Formula One championship. He entered Formula One in 2010 with Williams, spent a couple of years with Force India, spent a couple of years with Renault, concluded his championship with uh, his championship run in a couple of, to your point, cameos in 2020 with Racing Point, largely because of the COVID circumstances. He sat in for Lance Stroll when he missed a race due to COVID. He would have sat in for two races for Sergio Perez. He was the first one that that 70th anniversary Grand Prix. What happened? He he well, he qualified, but then some they, they couldn't get the car to the grid or some. Yeah, exactly. So the British Grand Prix, on. the British Grand Prix, they couldn't get the car started due to mechanical issues. And then he did finish seventh at this 70th anniversary uh, Grand Prix, which was terrific to see. And then he finished eighth at the Eiffel Grand Prix. But he had a great run, almost 200 Grand Prix or maybe a little over 200 Grand Decent, Prix. He won yep. the GP2 championship in 2009. He seemed to become a bit of a fan favorite in 2020. I think people didn't realize what they'd lost after 2019 because he was kind of a little bit buried with that Renault team. Mm -hmm. But it's nice to see him 
nice to see him get a ride and it continues to build that, those bonds between Formula One and Indy. And I think because of Drive to Survive and I think because he made a couple appearances last year, he's going to be a fairly marketable force. Uh, maybe force is too, too, <laughs> too strong, but he, he'll be very marketable in the IndyCar Championship. Yeah, Zach Brown, CEO of McLaren, had to say this about uh, Nico. Quote, I think aggressive drivers are rewarded in IndyCar. Nico is one of those drivers who climbs on top of the wheel, as they say here in America. I'm really looking forward to seeing him at work. I think he'll enjoy it. Fernando Alonso and Marcus Erickson certainly enjoyed it. End quote. And then uh, Hulkenberg himself had to say the following quote, I haven't been behind the wheel for pretty much a year since that last minute stint at the Nürburgring. I'm looking at, uh, at it and I feel like I still have some good laps in my right foot. I mainly want to discover the car. I have watched the last few races and my heart really lies with the single seaters. Formula One is not going to happen anymore. So then you look at the best possible alternative. IndyCar is definitely an interesting option, end quote. All right. Okay. This is this is one I really wanted to talk about. I think this one will be kind of fun. So Bernie Ecclestone, remember him? Uh, he actually agrees with Max Verstappen and Max's stance of uh, not uh, participating in Drive to Survive. Now, you know, may maybe this will be a wake up moment if you're with Max Verstappen because like the, uh, you know, unpopular 80 year old that nobody really seems to have any time for. <laughs> Or certainly not too popular among the fan base, you know, thinks the same of you. Maybe you're going to maybe rethink about that. Anyways, that's just me being me. Anyways, um, you know, Max, he said uh, before the, uh, you know, the, the, the U.S. Grand Prix, he doesn't like being part of it. Uh, he says that, you know, some of the rivalries in there are faked and all that sort of stuff. Anyways, uh, former uh, Formula One boss Bernie Ecclestone had the following to say, quote, I'm a realist and I know it's not going to be very real. So I know how these guys act and think and do a lot of them. And we see the things, you know, are completely wrong. Then maybe I get to like Max and get a bit upset, end quote. So. I don't know. Not really too much to add to that, but uh, certainly, you know, we, we all know what Bernie was all about when he was in charge of uh, Formula One. Let's just say that from from a media and social media point of view, Formula One has evolved in light years beyond that. I mean, I guess if Max doesn't want to do it, that's that's his uh, prerogative. I guess he's kind of like that one guy that we all know that doesn't do Twitter, doesn't do Facebook or Instagram or anything like that. And, um, or, you know, I, I, it's just not his jam. So whatever, more power to him, but it's a shame in a way. Yeah. Somebody had made a comment on our Twitter a couple of days ago, responding to our commentary about Max's unwillingness to participate and drive to survive. And his comment was maybe F1's better for it. And his his point was really that, look, if you go back to 2019, when Ferrari and Mercedes weren't involved in the drive to survive production, mm -hmm. we became introduced to a whole slew of new teams and drivers that we probably never would have learned about. And maybe Max's absence is good because it gives all these other drivers and personalities a platform and an opportunity to introduce themselves to the world because obviously if max was involved he would probably be a fairly dominant figure in the show and i think we know quite a bit about max even mm -hmm. though he's not necessarily as public a personality as some of these other folks are so i've kind of evolved on that position i think hey you know what you're going to miss out long term maybe more than we are because there's just so many great personalities and so many great stories here and just with respect to the bernie piece one of these days you and i need to sit down with somebody and just talk about where would formula one be 
if Bernie didn't move off of this property when he did, because I think we can both probably pretty confidently say it would not be enjoying the current renaissance it's enjoying if he was still running the show. The Netflix deal wouldn't have happened. They would be still kicky and streaming about social media. They wouldn't have a streaming platform. Mm -hmm. They would still be grinding TV networks for better deals. I just... Assuming uh, they made it through the pandemic in the first place. But that's a great point, too, because you also look, it was only 10, 11, 12 years ago where the bulk of the teams in Formula One were deep into negotiations to leave Formula One and mm -hmm. start up their own series. The, like when you think about it, Bernie was never even able to get all of the teams on board with the idea of a cost cap. Like the teams were spurning him and were actively looking to leave Formula One. Liberty comes in, and we talk about the fact that a lot of what Liberty's done has kind of been low hanging fruit. Like it's pretty obvious you should embrace social media. It's pretty obvious <laughs> you should have a social media or you should have a streaming platform. It's pretty obvious you should do a lot of the things that they've done, but they were also able to get the teams on boards with concepts that. Bernie was never able to get them on board with. They were never going to sign up to a cost cap with Bernie, but they engaged and they embraced the cost cap with Liberty. So kudos to Liberty. But as as for Bernie, one, I'm tired. I, I shouldn't criticize too much because I'm the one that put this story on the agenda <laughs> for tonight, but I'm tired of hearing from Bernie. And I'll be very honest. I'm almost surprised that some sort of Ugh, some sort of gross, despicable story hasn't come out in the last two or three years about something outrageous he said or did in the past that should have had him banned from all news channels. Like, I just feel like there's a lot of skeletons in that closet and eventually some of them are going to pop out and people are like, why were we, why did we embrace this guy and acknowledge this guy as the head honcho of Formula One for as long as we did? It's maybe not a March shot, but there's definitely some dirt there that I suspect is going to surface at some point and we're all going to try to distance ourselves from them as much as possible. Ultimately, I think, uh, you know, at, at the simplest uh, sort of uh, level, I guess you can say he was probably the right person to bring Formula One as far as he did, but probably Agreed. then stayed on longer than he probably should have. Totally agree. I think that's the perfect way to put it. Yeah. And now let's go on to a, a story that's a little bit lighter here. So um, Zach Brown is going to get a tattoo of Monza after Danny Ricardo won the Italian Grand Prix and has uh, he's basically thrown down the gauntlet and has, uh, you know, he's, he's really trying to push Surreal Abitable, former uh, boss at Renault, to do the same because he had that bet with Danny Ricardo last year. Should he get a podium, he would get a get a tattoo. Danny delivered at the, the, the Nürburgring and it just uh, hasn't happened. I mean, both of them said it was going to happen at uh, at some point, and uh, Zach actually did. He got uh, he got uh, the uh, the the circuit outline, the track uh, of uh, Monza, on his right shoulder with the dates. Uh, uh, sorry, September twelfth, twenty twenty one, on his uh, left uh, shoulder. So uh, good for you for sticking to your end of the bargain, and uh, perhaps uh, maybe he will inspire uh, <laughs> Surreal Abitabul to uh, to light up uh, or to, to sit down and go and get inked because it deals a deal man do you have any tattoos i've never asked you this before no i don't you know i, I would probably have uh, you know the, the only reason why i haven't gotten a, a tattoo is because i have trouble deciding which pair of socks to put on in the morning <laughs> and then i immediately regret my choice so when it comes to something a little bit more permanent i'm really a little bit uh you know hesitant about that but just because you know <laughs> i probably so make I, the wrong I'm booked in for my first one Oh, really? I, I have face I tattoos, find a way, not face tattoos. I'm not going down the Mike Tyson route, but <laughs> I always find a way to weave my life into our podcast stories. So this was, this story was very specifically 
insert it into the podcast agenda so I could go here. But when I first met my wife, one of you know when you're when you first start dating and you're having conversations, I don't know how, but the topic of tattoos came up, and I knew she didn't like them, so I'm like, oh, tattoos—they're terrible. I would never get one. Where secretly, I'd always wanted one. So over <laughs> the course of the last decade, I've slowly been warming her up to the idea, and I finally kind of got her resigned to the idea that I'll get my son's name on my leg. So I'm okay. going to get it done in Farsi. We found an artist that did this beautiful piece of work, calligraphy. And then when we're in we're in, in the Middle East, I found a tattoo artist that specializes in Arabic calligraphy. So I'm going to get a big one done on the top of my right leg. So cool. very, very excited about that. And I will probably share with everybody once the pain goes down. So expect some, <laughs> expect some unwanted photos come January. But yeah, I thought the story was cute because it just reinforced to me that, hey, tattoos are mainstream enough now that I can really really justify and rationalize getting one. Okay, well, you got to reach out to uh, you know, Surreal and maybe you guys can go at the same time. I will invite him. I will send him the uh, the invite via WhatsApp. There you go. Okay, time for another break. Uh, when we come back, still a couple of uh, Mercedes, sorry, not Mercedes. I always get McLaren and Mercedes mixed up. You know, I'm stuck in the silver arrows of 20 years ago. I just can't uh, move on. Anyways, time for a quick break and then we're going to talk about uh, Andreas Seidel. And we'll do so in just a moment, so don't go away. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. So, yes, uh, Andreas Seidel, team principal of uh, McLaren Mercedes, has said they are going to fight Ferrari until the very last corner of the very last race at Abu Dhabi in about uh, six to seven weeks uh, from now. And there is just, um, you know, a hair separating these two teams in the Constructors' Championship. And this is one that we've been talking about for some time. I think it's going to be really fun to watch these uh, two teams battle it out over the last uh, five uh, races. And I, I don't expect either of them are going to, to really capitulate or throw in the towel I think that they're going to go at it uh, the, the rest of the year. I am a little bit surprised. I thought that, you know, Ferrari has really downplayed their chances over the last uh, year, year and a half, and e even, you know, this year to a certain extent. And slowly but surely, they, they've kind of, I mean, they, they haven't really blown us away a lot of times, but I think quietly they've they've put together a decent season, enough to put them in that conversation. Because third in the constructors' championship is nothing to turn your nose up at, and I mean, they're 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 battling it out with a very competitive uh, McLaren team, and you know, there, there's a lot of money on the line, plus bragging rights, which is uh, just as equally important in Formula One. They've done a really great job of tempering expectations going into this year. And I recall a story that you shared in the winter, which was, hey, not only are we not looking to be competitive in 2021, but we're really not looking to be competitive in 2022. So they're doing that really smart thing that I think big companies do sometimes where they're going through a rebuilding phrase is let's not get all the analysts excited because that gets Wall Street excited and mm -hmm. our stock surges when maybe it shouldn't. And then all of a sudden when the stock comes back again, we get criticized because we lost 20% of the value of our stock. So they've been doing a really good job of tempering expectations, but they've been very, very solid this year. And if you look at just how close the US Grand Prix was, McLaren scored a fifth and an eighth place and Ferrari scored a fourth and a seventh place. So they are separated by a razor's margin at this point. I'm invested in Ferrari to finish third because that was my prediction when we did the mid-season show with Matt Sakaris all those months ago. It feels like an eternity ago, but when we I know, did that right? mid-season show. So my money's still with Ferrari, but I think they are extremely hungry for this. And for them, it's more about bragging rights. And again, for McLaren, it's, it's about 
bragging rights, but it's more about the tens of millions of dollars of additional prize money they'll win by finishing third versus fourth because they need that money to make capital investments in the team and to finance operations and pay down some of the massive debt they've incurred over the better part of the last 10 to 20 years. So it's an incredibly exciting championship. So one, we've got that constructors battle at the top between Mercedes and Red Bull, and the two teams are separated by, I think, 23 points right now. And then you've got this battle for third between McLaren and Ferrari. And that battle separated by just three and a half points, a razor's margin. So lots to fight for as we go down to the wire. Of course, Alpine currently sits fifth with 104 points. And Alpha Tauri Honda finish is sitting in sixth with 94 points. And then the extremely disappointing Aston Martin Mercedes are sitting seventh with 62 points. And I think if you had told either of us six months ago that Aston Martin Mercedes would be in seventh place with 62 points. Neither of us would have believed you. Yeah. It, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, it, it'll mean a lot to either team that uh, finishes third. But I think for McLaren, I think it, it would just be, it, it would it would mean a lot more to them. I think, uh, you know, just looking from the outside, uh, like you say, you pointed out like a lot of great things. I mean, the 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 amount of prize money they're going to win, but I think it would be a validation just of this this whole renaissance that they've been uh, going through the last uh, couple of years. That uh, yeah, we're 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 going in the right uh, direction, and we're potentially on the cusp of uh, something very very special. So it's it's going to be a lot of fun to watch, and can't wait to see uh, these two teams uh, going at it uh, again in Mexico just uh, a, a week from now. Um, sticking with another attack. Italian team, and I kind of say that in inverted commas because they sort of kind of not really are, but still they kind of are. And I'm talking about Alfa Romeo and uh, Antonio Giovinazzi said it's not easy to keep racing this year because his own personal uh, situation with the team is up in the air. He doesn't know if he's going to be bought, brought back for 2022. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to this in a moment, but the, the whole thing with the Andretti Autosport is uh, not going to happen. And there was a lot of speculation that the reason why Alfa Romeo had not uh, confirmed Giovinazzi for next year was that uh, a takeover by Andretti was imminent and they are most likely going to put Colton Herta, the IndyCar driver, into um, into that car instead. And now there's other uh, drivers like Guan Yu Zhu, Oscar Piastri, and uh, Theo Poucher. They're all being uh, linked to, to Alfa Romeo for next year. So uh, and, uh, Antonio said, uh, you know, it's 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 definitely not easy. But uh, you know, he said if you ask any other driver on the grid, they'll say the the, the same thing. And it is kind of tough. I mean, the longer that they kind of make him twist in the the, the wind, especially the the longer or the deeper we get into the season. And come on, I mean, the season's going to be over in just under two months now. Uh, it just makes it more difficult for him to secure a drive for next year, certainly in uh, Formula One and perhaps even in another series. So who knows? Yeah, Ferrari definitely is invested in him retaining a seat. I think it's valuable for them from a marketing perspective to have an Italian-born driver in the championship. He was a, a test driver for a couple of years with Sauber Haas and then Alfa Romeo in 2018 before finally joining the team full-time as a driver in 2019. In his first full year, he had four points finishes. His best finish that year was a fifth place in Brazil. He finished 17th in the World Drivers' Championship. And then in 2020, he finished 17th. And this year, he's currently 18th. He has that one one point finish that one 10th place finish in Monaco earlier this season. But other than that, he's finished out of the points every single race this, this year. 
Yeah, and uh, sticking with uh, with uh, with Sauber Alfa Romeo, uh, yeah, that uh, deal that uh, was uh, reputedly going to give uh, Andretti uh, up to eighty percent owners of uh, Sauber is uh, you know is definitely not going to happen. So apparently they're going to have to pay a bank guarantee of two hundred and fifty million dollars on top of a three hundred and fifty dollar or three million dollars for the purchase of the team. And uh, Sauber apparently wanted this to you know, sort of offset uh, any possible setbacks or anything debt detrimental uh, from uh, uh, sponsor income that may be uh, withdrawn or uh, just not uh, uh, renewed and just uh, could possibly, <laughs> you know, endanger like the, the, the existence of that team. So um, apparently this is a little bit uh, too rich for Andretti. I mean, you know, I think we were saying that, uh, or at least when these rumors started that uh, perhaps it was what in the neighborhood of they're asking 250 or 300 million, but there's a lot of uh, different things out there. Um, you know, some the, the different, uh, you know, terms out there, but, uh, apparently that, uh, their, uh, Swedish billionaire owner, which is Finn Rousing, um, had apparently put a price out there that Andretti was willing to pay, but they also had to pay a $50 million a year guarantee to the team for five years to be paid up front, which would have been that $250 million. So it just sounds that when they kind of added up all these things that there was just you know, the bar was set way too high for Andretti and there was no way that uh, they either could or wanted to uh, pay that sort of money to uh, to do it. So it would have been good to see, but at least in the short term, it's, you know, we're, we're not going to see American ownership in Formula One. I don't think you may know this, but we were actually criticized quite a bit because we didn't jump on the story when it first broke three or four weeks ago. And I think part of that was simply because I looked at the Andretti Autosport finances and I knew right from the beginning that this deal was going to be a stretch and it was going to be a stretch for a couple of reasons because one, Andretti himself doesn't have this cash and Andretti Autosports doesn't have this cash. So it was more of them fronting a consortium. And ultimately the purchase price of the team or for a majority stake in the team was going to be about $350 million US. The $250 million was more just a, a bank guarantee that they were going to have $250 million minimum to inject in the team over the next five years. Because by buying the team, there was a very real risk that they might forfeit existing sponsorship deals that some inbound pay drivers may no longer be with the team. So that source of revenue may go. So ultimately what Sauber was saying is like, look, we'll agree to a deal, but we need to know that you have $250 million cash in addition to the purchase price to invest in the team to make sure that it can continue to function. And ultimately $350 million for a Formula One team in 2021 is an absolute steal. It sets the bar way too low for what the valuation of these teams should be. And mm -hmm. I think the tricky too is, when you look at valuating or putting a valuation on a professional sports team, I think oftentimes it's it's very much disconnected with the reality of the P&L statements that these teams publish, that a lot of these teams lose money, or maybe they break even, or maybe they make a little bit of cash. It's very, very difficult for a NFL team or a Major League Baseball team to earn its owner's the valuation of the team. Like if you look at some of these NFL teams, they're worth an excess of three or $4 billion. And we have NHL teams that are now worth near $2 billion. And we have multiple NBA teams in the two to $4 billion range. While most of these teams are profitable, if managed properly, they're never going to earn their owners that type of money back. The valuation of professional sports teams is typically very speculative and it's typically linked to the value of the network TV deals that are associated with these teams. But all of that said, 
F1 teams can be very profitable, but a $350 or $350 million valuation in 2021 is a joke. And it's good for F1 and it's good for Sauber that this deal didn't go through because I promise you there is a much, much, much richer deal out there. And I think what we're seeing right now is a real boom in the interest of Formula One, but I think there's a little bit of slack between that boom in interest Mm -hmm. and Liberty being able to capitalize on that through renewed sponsorship and through renewed sanctioning fees and through renewed TV network deals that ultimately there's going to be a real boom in the income of the sport. And of course, a lot of that trickles down through to the teams, through the championship as is dictated in the sporting regulations and in the Concord agreement. So I think if I'm Sauber, hey, it's just as well this deal didn't go through because once F1 is start is able to start capitalizing on this renewed interest, the valuation of these teams is going to skyrocket because the amount of income reaching the teams is going to increase dramatically. So I think it's a ultimately it's a good thing that it didn't happen. And it's like Lawrence Stroll said on the Beyond the Grid podcast two weeks ago, the way he sees the sport is that with an effective cost cap and renewed TV network deals, Formula One teams should be worth a billion, two billion dollars. So I'm glad this deal didn't go through, although I would love to see a really engaged American owner in Formula One. Yeah, you know, it kind of, uh, you know, dovetails nicely with the next story. And this is uh, from um, CODA boss Bobby Epstein, who said uh, he believes that a winning American driver could help sustain as many as three or four races in the USA. And I'll just read the the, the quote from Bobby. And uh, he says, quote, I think a winning American driver can sustain three or four Grand Prix. And I'm certainly excited about the possibility of another American team. But just having an American team doesn't put uh, fans in the stands. We found that out because Gene Haas and Gunther Steiner and those guys have put the best product they can out there. And I think, yeah, an American champion would do great, end quote. So <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it have you know Haas really put the best product they can out there? Mm, yeah, I don't know. And then as uh, many people say that uh, you know they they don't really consider you know from our American fans, they a lot of them, most of them say an overwhelming majority say they they don't really view Haas as as an American team. It really is kind of hard to argue with that. Yeah, that's a total garbage and inaccurate comment in the sense that one. I'm not necessarily going to fault Gunther Steiner because I think he has a very, very strict budget and I don't think he has any control over driver decisions. I think ultimately he's there to moderately steer the ship in the sense that, hey, look after some of the day-to-day BS as it comes up, but ultimately all of the executive decision-making is out of your hands, either because we're being driven by a really strict cost structure or because ultimately our sponsors and Gene Haas are controlling the team. So Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a fair comment because I don't think they've done anything to grow Formula One in the United States. If they had, they would have developed a driver academy. They would have identified young talent. They would be, they would have been bringing young American drivers over for test drives since Mm -hmm. 2016. They've done nothing. But I think that comment about a really capable young American driver stimulating interest in the sport is absolutely true. And, you know, Joe made that great observation. And so did a couple of our listeners, including Meg and um, Taryn during the spaces chat earlier today, which was the overwhelmingly dominant colors that coded this weekend were Red Bull colors and they were the Mexican flag. And it was because of the amount of excitement that Sergio Perez generated. And my thought is, I wonder if a young, capable American driver that's fighting for podiums was on the grid. What would that do for the sport? So I think F1's in this really cool place right now in the United States where they've peaked 
the interest of a lot of fans and a lot of fans are now giving formula one an opportunity either by going to a grand prix or tuning in or subscribing to the streaming app but to sustain that interest i think it will be helpful although not required mm -hmm. for there to, uh, uh, there to be an american driver because i think we have to give american sports fans more credit than i think somebody like stephen a smith did because of course he made those appalling comments about um uh, a Tani in Major League Baseball and the fact that he wasn't accessible to American fans because he, his English wasn't great. I think that was hmm. absolute nonsense. But I think the American sports fan is now sophisticated enough that they can be passionate about the sport and they can support the sport without there being an American born driver on the grid. But that said, if there is one, all the better because it gives sure. them that kind of hometown driver to root for. Yeah, everybody loves cheer cheering for the home team, right? Yeah, I, I totally agree. So I, I don't think that it's a completely off the, 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 the cards, but it might just be a little bit longer than maybe some of us uh, were expecting. But, you know, kind of moving along, the one thing that uh, seems to be uh, developing a bit of a head of steam is uh, perhaps a race in Vegas is going to happen much sooner than uh, expected. Apparently, uh, representatives from Nevada met with uh, Formula One CEO Stefano Domenicali over the weekend of the uh, U.S. Grand Prix about getting a race in Vegas. And apparently this could happen as early as 2023, which is really kind of shocking. We go from, you know, just having the U.S. Grand Prix at, uh, at CODA for the past uh, number of years to um, you know going to Miami next year and then possibly the year after that going to the desert and going to Vegas. So that is uh, kind of exciting. So it's going to be you know, interesting to see what, uh, what what happens and where the talks go for or go from here and see how the, what really kind of leaks out into the public uh, domain. If it's going to happen anywhere, and when I say it happening anywhere, I'm I'm really talking about a street race. I think Las Vegas is probably the one city with the appetite to introduce that level of disruption to the city in terms of setting up and tearing down a Grand Prix track, because we both talked before about how long it takes to get somewhere like Baku and Monaco equipped for a Formula One race. It takes weeks of disruption to get that city ready, but Ultimately, Las Vegas is an entertainment capital. Its yep. entire economy yep. is driven by entertainment and tourism. So I think there'll probably be an appetite there. I think ultimately a good street race might complement what we're going to see in Miami. And Miami is a bit of a hybrid between a street track and a permanent circuit. And then, of course, at Coda, we have this beautiful permanent circuit. And then mm -hmm. maybe Las Vegas complements both of them by introducing a street course into the mix. Ultimately, I, I'm not particularly thrilled with the concepts that have been shown in respect to what that would look like. I think it would look really great on TV and I think it'd be exciting and be a lot of fun. I don't know that it would make for great racing. And I also think it's still in that moment in time where F1 needs to be a little bit more cautious with rolling this out because the last thing you can afford is to roll out another race in the US and yep. support and fan interest to collapse. Like you need to stimulate that interest, but you need to take it a little bit more cautiously, a little bit more slowly and be very tactical. I just, I don't want there to be some brash decisions made because, oh crap, we drew 400,000 people at Coda. We need to stick another American event on the calendar. Continue to nurse and continue to grow because as much as there were 400,000 people that track only one and a quarter million people tuned in. That's yeah. not a lot of viewers. Like you look at Canada, we had 600,000 people tune in for that race. We have 10% of the population of the U S like there's still a lot of room to grow. And maybe the next step in growing formula one in the U S isn't a third race, at least not yet. Yeah. You know what? I I'm just uh, before we move on to talking about uh, the ticket prices uh, for Miami, um, well, let, let's just say that um, 
I'm I'm not really keen on the the whole Leo Vegas thing. You know, I, I I've changed my mind on it because it would be terrible for the show. We'd have nothing to talk about because you know what they say: what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So you know, what are we? Oh. You know, okay. That was terrible. The dad so. joke. The dad <laughs> joke. It had to surface uh, at some point, right? Anyway, it's uh, time for one final break. And when we come back, we are going to finally talk about uh, Miami. We'll do so in just a moment. So guys, don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And we are now just going to talk about uh, the ticket prices for the uh, Miami Grand Prix, which is uh, going to happen uh, next year. So, Mark, uh, I'd be I'd be interested to hear your reaction, first of all, because uh, you were signed up for for the pre-sale. So some of the prices that uh, came out uh, for turn one, the prices uh, range from nine hundred ninety dollars to six hundred sixteen hundred ninety five dollars. Turn 18, eleven ninety to fifteen fifty over at the marina. $800 to $1,015. Uh, start finish $1,680 to $2,070. Okay, so first of all, these are all three day passes, but some of the cheaper seats, you know, if you want to call them that, three day pass in the family section go from $690 to $815. And then over on the beach, six hundred and forty to eight hundred and eighty dollars. So we were expecting it to be pricey. Were we? You know, did this kind of fall in the price range that you were expecting when uh, you signed up for the pre-sales, Mark? It did. And one of our Twitter listeners, one of our Twitter followers, one of our Twitty 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 <laughs> Twitter community members. Oh my gosh! Can you tell how late it is when we're recording this? No kidding, right? He wrote to us, Alejandro Guerrera. Hey, what do the marks think about the Miami GP prices? I was able to secure a ticket, although it hurt my bank account. Should attendees expect an experience to get their money's worth? Thank you and keep it up. So yes, this is exactly what I expected in terms yeah. of pricing. I think that Miami is going to position itself as a very different type of Grand Prix experience than Coda. I think Coda really leans into that festival, party, barbecue, tailgating experience where it's a big festival and party and everyone just comes together and enjoys the atmosphere. I feel like Miami is going to take a slightly different approach capacity is going to be much smaller. We're talking about 80,000 people per day as opposed to upwards of 120 or 140,000 people per day at Coda. There won't be general admission. It's going to be grandstand only, assigned seating only. But I feel like Miami is going to cater to a slightly different experience and crowd. And I think it's probably mm-hmm. going to be something that more closely resembles Yas or Monaco. And I think they're very much going to lean into the prestige um, luxury appointment type of experience. So I think they're going for a different type of look and feel. So we had some conversation about this on the spaces chat tonight. It's like, well, how, how close is Miami going to be able to get to replicating the experience? And I think the answer is they're not going to try to replicate Coda. They're going to go for a completely different look, a completely different feel and a completely different experience. So yes, the pricing was higher than I expected. We also have it on good authority that the pricing wasn't even dialed in until Sunday night. So we oh, wow. knew the pre-sales were going to go live Tuesday, but I think that was by design because one, they wanted to they wanted to run the pre-sales in the shadow while the buzz and excitement of Coda was still fresh in people's minds. But we also believe that they had it dialed in pricing until Sunday because they wanted to see just what the ceiling could be for the ticket pricing and they dialed them in 
ultra high because they recognized what the demand was going to be. They saw 400,000 people funnel into Coda. They realized that a lot of that crowd would spill over to their own event, but furthermore, that there was an awful lot of people out there that maybe would never go to Coda, but have this type of money lying about, but would absolutely love to sit in some assigned seating in Miami and take in South Florida for a week or two during a fairly accessible time of year. So in, in May, I think this pricing is to be expected. Whether it's sustainable or not, we're going to have to wait and see. But yeah, it's exactly what I saw. Now, in terms of what happened this week, my pre-sale was Wednesday. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of people, I got that email on Tuesday. And that email, and I've got it here. I'll just read it out real quick. The email that I got was, hey, pre-sale update. Thank you for your interest in the Formula One Miami Grand Prix. Due to high demand, we no longer have pre-sale tickets available. So they actually sold out on the Tuesday. Now, hmm. there was some allotment that was team-based that I think some people were still able to gobble up. But what's understood to have happened is the pre-sale codes that were being distributed on Tuesday got out in the wild and people were able to buy tickets without waiting for their pre-sale window. Now, uh, the okay. Miami GP organizers are being pressed hard on this. How did this happen? Why didn't you have better controls? But ultimately, those tickets are sold. People have been assigned seating. They're good to go. So unfortunately, a lot of people that may otherwise have been able to get tickets weren't able to do so because like I said, those pre-sale codes got out. It became a free for all people hmm. assigned bots and the tickets were gone. Hmm. Too bad. All right. Well, let's uh, move on to the, the next one here. Oh, okay. Well, this is kind of cool. We'll, we'll finish this one up and then uh, this sort of dovetails nicely into a, a question uh, that we had. So uh, Lewis Hamilton actually wants uh, formula one to return to South Africa after uh, uh, almost a 30 year uh, gaps. It's the last uh, race that uh, we had there in uh, 1993. I guess it would uh, work out to be at uh, Kyalami. And that works in uh, nicely to a question that we had from uh, Bill Jones, who said, uh, I personally thought Coda was a brilliant, brilliant track and the race turned out amazing. Could you discuss your favorite and least favorite racing tracks on the F1 calendar? Also, maybe any tracks that aren't on the calendar, but should because they are amazing. Finally, I would love uh, to hear you explain why you love these tracks. So, first of all, I'll admit that uh, my two, I would say, least favorite uh, tracks uh, would be Monaco and uh, and Hungary. I'm not really a fan of uh, either of them. I I, I get that uh, that uh, the Formula One going to Monaco was like a thing. It's like they're a jewel in the crown, and but you know, I just I think that the track sucks <laughs> you know and and the racing there is just um it, it can be the most boring race of the entire year and 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 a lot of the drivers have uh, said that uh, too um hungry i find uh you know a, a bit of a, a frustrating track to watch because there isn't too much uh you know opportunities to pass and we've seen many examples in the past where the car that's uh, leading the race can sometimes just stay in front even though they might be slower because there's just nowhere to to, to get around so tracks that i would like to see come back well, I always wanted to see um, Zanforts in in Formula One, so that that was a wish that was granted. Now, another one that I find a little bit uh, strange is the fact that we don't have a, a German Grand Prix. And I mean, Nurburgring is pretty cool. I mean, I've been there; it was a great uh, experience. And Hockenheim, I've been there as well, but that was the old one, and I don't necessarily 
like the new Hockenheim, which isn't necessarily that new anymore. But so I'm, I, I'm a little bit as much as I like to see a German Grand Prix, like I don't really think there's like a really the tracks could maybe leave a little bit to to, to be desired. So in, t- in terms of tracks, I'd maybe like to see another one that uh, is kind of cool is Fuji, but you know, it's again, I guess maybe kind of like really old school. Um, you know, that one's kind of a bit of a, a sentimental one. I've, you know, I've, I've visited around there. I've never been to a race, but I've been to the track. Um, another one that would be kind of interesting would be a uh, brand's hatch. I don't think formula one's raced there since what the eighties, maybe I don't ever remember watching a race there since, you know, I was like maybe like nine, eight, nine years old or something like that. So it's been like a long, long time, but those are just a couple that, uh, that uh, popped to mind. How about yourself? It's a good question, but as the calendar continues to expand, there's fewer and fewer tracks. I really enjoyed being back in Turkey. Hopefully we yes. find a way to keep Turkey on the calendar. Portugal, I thought was a blast. I love Mugello. I love Imola. I would love to see all of those on the track. And that's, if there's anything good that's come out of COVID and there really hasn't been, I think what we've seen <laughs> over the last couple of years is we got to see a bunch of tracks that would never otherwise have had the opportunity to audition or re-audition for Formula One pop up. Like I never thought we were going to see Mugello on the Formula One calendar. Yeah. I didn't, I wasn't sure that we were going to see Imola again, simply because Monza has such a stranglehold on the calendar and Maybe we see more of Imola. I'm so thrilled and so happy we got to see Portugal. I was certain that we would never, never see Portugal again. So I, I'm super thrilled we got to see a lot of these places. I know it's now an impossibility because it's a political, it's a political poison. But I would love to have seen Vietnam. We were so close to seeing that Vietnamese Grand Prix, which would have been a hybrid of a street circuit and a dedicated Grand Prix circuit. So is that so just not going to happen that. now? Yeah, it's been largely disassembled as I understand it in that a lot of the a lot of the land that was used to build the circuit is being handed back to a local jurisdiction that manages mm. it for parks and recreation and again it it seems that the individual or the politician in Vietnam that was leading the Formula 1 charge was effectively indicted with fraud or convicted of fraud. <laughs> okay, great. And nobody wants anything to do with any of his projects. So this one's being being wrapped up. So I would have loved to have seen all of those. Um, I would love to see a way to get back to some of the more traditional circuits in the US. And I think people know which one um, I'm alluding to. But what, yeah, those Watkins are the ones Glenn? that I would love. To, yeah, I think with a fairly significant capital investment, I think that would be pretty cool to see Watkins Glen back on the calendar. And in terms of the tracks that I love today, I love Baku because it's unpredictable. It's fun. It looks cool on TV. I love Singapore. Um, I love Silverstone because I just think it makes, it's almost the a darn near perfect Grand Prix circuit when you mm-hmm. consider atmosphere and energy and history and heritage and legacy. Like and Monza. Track layout. Yeah. And then I love Yoss, not because there's been great Grand Prix racing there because there hasn't, but this year it should be a blast with the changes that they've made because I love that it has a very different type of energy. And I've, I'm starting to really love Coda. And I also love Mexico because I yeah. love the stadium section towards the back end of the track. I think that's very, very cool. And again, that, that stadium section doesn't make for great racing, but it looks cool. And I love the energy of the crowd as the drivers come through. So there's a lot to love, but a lot of the tracks that I would love to see permanently on the track on the, on the calendar, like I said, have had these mini auditions in 2020 and 2021. 
Yeah, there's a lot of great shouts there. But I mean, ultimately, I mean, we're at 23 races right now. You know, they say that they want to get up to, to 25 and you get like Lewis saying, well, we should go back to South Africa and all these other races that get it kind of thrown out there. It's just like, well, you know, if we're at the limit right now and, uh, you know, that's, you know, Formula One's bursting at the seams and potentially adding two more. I mean, something's got to give. So either existing races are going to have to drop off and then be replaced by some of these other ones. And then we've got new tracks that have come in with long term deals. I mean, look at Qatar. I mean, they're like a sort of a last Great minute fill, fill in and, and now did, they're going to get did a, that one come from. I don't know, but they got a 10 year yeah. deal out of it. Right. So it came from an out of nowhere yeah. fill in to, Hey, we're going to build a new permanent track on the Cornish downtown and you've got a 10 year contract. Yeah. It's a, it's amazing. But anyway, so just as we uh, wrap it up here, uh, just one final story. And this is just a follow up uh, from last week and the, uh, the, the global uh, formula one fan survey that uh, the, the results were released, what about 10 days ago now. So formula one CEO Stefano uh, Domenicali said that he was surprised that Lewis Hamilton did not come out as the number one most popular driver. Anyways, he had to say the following, quote, well, I have to say yes, in a way. But on the other hand, if you think about the demographic of the people that are more involved in these kinds of votes, I think that you understand why Lando has a great audience in that respect. It's more connected to the fact that he has an approach with them that is fresh in a way that is more close to the people that are following that. That is my personal view, end quote. So, yeah, there you go. I guess uh, that that is a, a bit of a you know a truth to it. I mean, uh, so the three, four, sorry, the four most popular drivers was Max, Lando, Lewis, and then Danny Ricardo rounded out uh, the the top four. I mean, uh, all four very different uh, personalities, but uh, I, I guess you could say that uh, that Lando and uh, Ricardo are probably the two more bubbly personalities whereas max uh, is could be a little bit kind of gruff and distance and aloof and and lewis is lewis i mean he's a fairly personable uh you know nice guy but you know definitely not as uh maybe uh you know well i mean he's trendy in his own way but i mean in a different way than uh, than than uh, say lando you know, the the twitch streamer kind of guy but i mean they're also very different ages as well so i think there's certainly that to to, to take into account as well before you start turning off the lights and setting the security system as we shut down <laughs> the, the race weekend studios for another Thursday podcast. You got 45 hear seconds. Me on this one. <laughs> hear me out on this one. So my thought is this is, and I'm saying this as a Lewis Hamilton fan, this is actually a good news story. It's a good news story that Lewis Hamilton isn't currently the most popular driver in Formula One. And hear me out. The okay. reason I'm saying this is we know that in all likelihood, Lewis is going to be packing his bags and pursuing other amazing interests after 2023. Probably. Sure. Yep. The fear is that if F1 was in a position that the NBA was in in 1998, where you have one person who's so overwhelmingly dominant and over, so overwhelmingly popular and transcendent that upon his or her departure, the sport could suffer a really significant blow in terms of exposure and popularity and TV ratings. The fact that that isn't Lewis Hamilton today speaks to the strength of Formula One and it speaks to the strength of the current driver lineup. I look at the NBA, like you look at Michael Jordan in the late 90s, when he left the league, the league was terrified. The TV partners were terrified. And the NBA went into this really dark spell for four or five or six years, really until the 2003 draft when we saw Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade and Car Carmelo Anthony and LeBron joined, finally joined the league. But my, I think my point here is it's a good news story because there are so many fantastic 
young talents in the sport that will be able to carry that proverbial torch when Lewis leaves. And Lewis will leave. He'll leave with seven or eight championships. He'll be considered arguably one of the greatest of all time, but he's going to be leaving the sport with some really great, exciting young talent. And that's a good thing for all of us because it's going to give you and I things to talk about well into our 50s. Yeah. <laughs> oh, come on, man. Don't don't go there. That, that, that's going to happen way too soon, right? But uh, anyways, <laughs> I, I totally agree. Anyways, I think that's all we got uh, for, for this week. Um, again, uh, everybody, thank you for uh, downloading, listening to the show. Thank you for all of you that uh, came into the Spaces chat this evening. Check it out. Check our twitter we usually go at about what 6 6 30 pacific yeah, time 6, 6, 30. on on a thursday night before the show and uh, of course uh, the best way to find out about that is to follow us on twitter at scuderia f1 pod send us an email at scuderia f1 pod at gmail.com that's it that's a wrap if you're looking for something to do this weekend you can leave us a review on itunes or not itunes apple Podcasts, whatever it is it helps us uh, grow the show and uh, we always love to get the feedback but Enough on that. Have a great weekend. Take care, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye for now. Okay.